Shameless Media. This episode of The Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Bailey's Irish Cream Liqueur, inspiring indulgence through me-time moments. Hello and welcome to The Shameless Book Club. My name is Ruby Hall. I'm a junior podcast producer here at Shameless Media and I had the pleasure of editing this interview between American professor and author Kylie Reid and our own book clubber Sahani Gunatilika. You'll likely know Kylie's debut novel and New York Times bestseller, Such a Fun Age. However, today, Sahani will be speaking to Kylie about her latest release, Come and Get It. Come and Get It explores the wild world of money. Set on a college campus, Kylie presents consumption to us in all its forms. This chat is thought-provoking. It was interesting to hear Kylie's thought process behind the novel and why we as a society find money talk so taboo. Here is Kylie and Sahani. Hi, Kylie. Welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Many of our listeners at home will be familiar with your debut novel, Such a Fun Age. It received so much love and was long listed for the 2020 Booker Prize. And now you're here to promote your sophomore book, Come and Get It. So congratulations. Thank you so much for having me and for reading it. I'm excited to chat. So there are a lot of interesting themes covered in the book, but I would love to chat about money and class with you. Some would say there is a lot of taboo in the literary world when it comes to exploring themes to do with money. Mm-hmm. What made you want to tackle this? I've always been really drawn to stories that have really clear like world-building limitations. Um, I don't read a lot of science fiction, but I love watching science fiction films. And I feel that in my own writing, I like to magnify the limitations that are placed on my characters. And I write like hyper-realistic situations from Mm. dialogue to plot lines and money is just a driving force in our world um it dictates who you date where you go to school the food you eat the clothes Mm -hmm. you wear how you operate within a religion it just touches everything and so i'm always really interested in how money works in a certain subculture and in this one i was really intrigued by a dorm and how money shows up in the currency and in the young people's rooms so You can't really talk about money without talking about class. And I think a dorm is a really great hothouse for a bunch of different students from different socioeconomic backgrounds coming and all living in the same types of rooms. So like one of the characters in my book, Agatha, I was really drawn to how money operates within this very small space. Um, That's about all I have in common with her. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) But yeah, money in classes, it, it rules our society. And I think finding the little ways that it works within a different subculture it's always been really fascinating to me speaking of college and academia education is often referred to as the great equalizer do you think there is still truth in that oh my god no <laughs> not at all <laughs> i think that you know like hustle culture and, and education as the great equalizer those imply that we're all starting from the same baseline And some Mm. people are struggling just to, you know, get out of bed in the morning or get their kids dressed or, you know, maybe they have a mental Mm. illness or a learning disability or, you know, there's so many things that you can have that doesn't mean that you're like smart or not if you're not good at school, particularly the way that school works in the United States. It's a lot about test taking and not about actual like intellect and analytical ability and comprehension. Yeah. Also, like, <laughs> I've just known so many people. There are people who have never set a foot in school who are brilliant. And there's people who've gone all the way in mm. school and 
should not be allowed to operate <laughs> within the world. So this novel, yes, it does take place on a campus. So in that sense, it is a campus novel, um, but it's a bit unconcerned with academia. There's only mm. one scene in a classroom that I think is maybe half a page long. The characters aren't super ambitious. Well, there's one very ambitious character, but she's not a big character. They're, they're not really into their grades as much. This is more about like yeah. where your mind is when you're living by yourself. Um, but I'm always intrigued. I'll always pick up a campus novel that is about academia as well. So I'm fine with that. Yeah, I found it really fascinating how seamlessly classes dialogue was littered throughout the book. There was so much tension simmering under the surface. And I thought it demonstrated how insidious classism is. Where do you think that insidious nature of classism comes from? I mean, I want to say slavery, but that's too simplistic of an answer, I feel. I think that living within a class society in a capitalist place, there is this um, ever-present, you know, notion to compete with one another. And I think that what living in a class society does, it says to you, If you want to know how good you're doing, all you have to do is look at the person next to you. What are they doing? What do they have? And when you start doing that, you're not really looking at, okay, well, her dad did this for her and I had this and she, you know, had this genetic thing. You know, you're not looking at all of the the ins and outs. And so I think that that competitive spirit to reach the top and feeling like resources are very limited, that definitely contributes to classism there's so much that goes unsaid when it comes to money people can feel a great sense of shame when it about the way that they grew up or private about the money they earn or even the inheritance they receive what do you think are the consequences of that secrecy that's a great question and i think there are a few different consequences on a surface level when we don't discuss money openly with friends, you may not know that you're being taken advantage of. Yeah. If you don't know, if you're a babysitter, like I was for many years and you think one price is okay. And then you realize that actually you're getting severely underpaid. That's a lot of money that you could have been losing. So I think that could be a detriment. Of course, I think on an entertainment level, which is obviously where I focus on, that's, that's my career right now. I am the person who, when I'm watching a movie and someone says, oh, my rent is so much. What am I going to do? I'm like, tell me how much it is. <laughs> Just tell yeah. me exactly what it is. Because I think mm. that we lose a bit of nuance to a world when we're not specific about money. Because if $800 for your rent is a lot or if it's nothing, I want to know more about the world that you were in. I think it says something about the place and the time and like, the the situation that you're currently in, I want to know all of the numbers. And so from an entertainment standpoint, I do think if we included more numbers, it would illuminate circumstances that people in, in novels are, are dealing with. And I just hate being vague. I want to know exactly what my characters are dealing with. So from a selfish mm. literary standpoint, I wish people would use more numbers. Yeah, I totally agree. It's sort of like how everyone thinks they're middle class. Oh my gosh, like- yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm just like, no, <laughs> that's not yeah. true. Yeah, it's like that, that people want to think that. That is the thing yeah. that's fascinating more than if they actually are or not. Yeah, which is, you know. Can you speak to that a bit more? Like, why do people want to think that? Oh, man, I wish I had a better answer. I think that people, no matter what they have, want to appear normal and deserving of their wealth. I remember when I was a receptionist, 
it seemed very important that all of the big executive people at the office I was at, it seemed very important to them that I liked them. And I think that yeah. there's a response from a lot of people that, you know, if the person making the least amount of money in the office likes me, then it's okay that I'm making the most, kind of using others to justify yeah. your place in the world when yeah. really it's all a mess. There's no <laughs> there's no ratio there that makes sense. So I want to speak a bit more specifically about the book. From the beginning, the protagonist, Millie, makes it really clear that her goal is to save money and buy a house. Can you speak to the significance of why it was so important for Millie to save up and buy a house, like specifically that symbol? Sure. She Millie takes a year off of school because her mom had an episode with her glaucoma that really scared Millie, and she wanted to go home and be there for her mother. And while they were at home, Millie and her mother bonded a lot, and they watched a lot of House Hunters and tiny house shows because there's like hundreds of them. It's it's bananas. Um, yeah. A house represents adulthood to Millie. She took a year off between high school and college so that she could go to Fayetteville, Arkansas and work and earn in-state tuition to help pay for school. So then she felt like she was already a year late and then she took another year off. And so now returning as a fifth year senior, she's 24 years old and she feels like she's a little bit too old to be there. And she's very concerned mm -hmm. about how that looks to everyone around her that she's that she's so old at the age of, of 24. And so a house really represents her being on the right track and kind of correcting her mistakes a bit. Um, of course, she's excited for, you know, to have a project. She's very organized and likes building things and, and working on a house in those ways. But this really symbolizes her becoming an adult and, and doing her life properly. Mm, I think a lot of people at home could also relate to that. But why do you think young people still view that as such an achievement or an accomplishment or like a milestone of adulthood, like you said, despite it becoming like increasingly unachievable? I was just going to, that's, you said it better than I did. I feel like, well, it's funny. <laughs> unachievable. <laughs> so maybe that's it. Yeah. I mean, we all grew up with parents who may have spent like a hundred K on a huge house and they didn't pay for college because their job put them oh. through college and they weren't paying for things like a cell phone or internet or doing social media or anything like that. And, and the housing, you know, market was just completely different. I think for many of our parents, having a house came a lot easier, but was also a symbol of of a family of being settled and, you know, stepping into this next phase of life. And so I think that that's a huge reason why it's still really important to young people. Um, but now I think it is what you were saying, the unattainability seems, I mean, it is incredibly unattainable. So that's true. Yeah. Um, and I think for Millie having a place of her own would write some of the setbacks that she had in college in a way that nothing else could. Here at the Shameless Book Club, we know how much you all love to take a moment to unwind and get lost in a story. So in my opinion, there's really no better way to celebrate these moments than with today's sponsor, Bailey's. Bailey's is the ultimate indulgent treat. So when I stumbled across the chocolatini cocktail created by the experts at Bailey's, I knew I was in for something special. This rich martini has three layers of chocolate, making it a very decadent way to end a night. This is a great one to have on a cozy night in 
with a book or even serve to a group of friends after a dinner party. If you're looking to really impress your guests, then the Bailey's hot chocolate cake makes for a delicious dessert as well. If you're over 18 and are interested in an indulgent treat, head online or in store to shop the Bailey's range. And as always, remember to drink responsibly. Thank you so much to Bailey's for making this episode of the Shameless Book Club possible. Initially, like at least to me, Millie seemed like such a rule follower because her job as a residential advisor was literally to keep students in line. Mm -hmm. But like as you read, Millie deviates from that and resorts to unethical practices to help achieve those goals. Why do you think, I don't know if this is a metaphor for something bigger, so correct me if I've interpreted it wrong, but why do you think engaging in unethical practices seems to be a viable option in the current climate? Oh, for so many reasons. For Millie in particular, Millie experiences the strange phenomenon of making new friends who are a bit mean and careless and fun Mm -hmm. and then adapting the same philosophies, even though that's not been something that she's ever done before. I do. I mean, it's, it's very trite to say, but you know, birds of a feather flock together a bit and she's excited Mm -hmm. by her new friends and, and wants to do things that they're doing and they all have different goals. And I think that she loses sight of hers a little bit, but I also do think that Millie deserves to have some fun. She works really hard and she's not used to having a tame level of fun. She doesn't really allow herself to do anything. She's kind of like a deprivation maven a little bit and feels like if she just hustles yeah. hard enough. So I think that having fun for her comes in the form of doing things that she wouldn't have done before, like lying to her friends, like having a bit of an affair and, and lying about her feelings for someone at the same time. I also think she's 24 and in your 20s, you're kind of trying on different personalities a little bit and she mm. makes some decisions that she's not super proud of. But at the same time, I, I feel like she's following her gut and I, I don't want to falter for that too much. Yeah. When I tried to like figure out like where it all kind of comes from, like her motivations to do all these things, it did kind of come back to money. So I wanted to ask you, does that saying money is the root of all evil, that's in quotes, hold true? I feel like it's a bit dramatic, but I just wanted to get your opinion on it. I mean, money truly does rule everything that we do. Even Mm. there's another character, Kennedy, who Mm. is desperate for friendship. And she has two roommates who couldn't be more different from each other. While Peyton is a very awkward, not very warm student who has a lot of money. And Tyler actually is pretty middle class and very mean and socially muscular and just like does everything right. Millie is still attracted to the level of class within Tyler's actions. Like no matter the money that she has, Tyler knows the etiquette of doing college. She like knows how to do college very, very well. And she has a lot of cultural cachet. And so even Kennedy knowing, wanting to be friends with Tyler, I think is driven by money because Tyler in her eyes knows how to spend money correctly, how to work correctly and to buy the right things, go to the right places. So I don't think you're too off by saying money (laughs) is the root of all (laughs) evil. I think it drives a lot of our decisions in, in ways that it wouldn't if we lived in a different society. Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't think of like 
the different ways that people look at money and how that's valuable. That's a really interesting concept. I want to speak more about Kennedy now that you've brought her up. So Kennedy's room is filled with a lot of materialistic items. And I do think that brings into question how much that is actually worth considering she's still struggling with so many things like making friends and with depression. Can you speak to that a bit more? Like, are you trying to downplay the value of material items through her character? When Kennedy feels nervous and alone and panicky, she turns to things. She and her mom Mm. are very close and they like to go to Target and buy food and DVDs and snacks and just hang out. And that's like her comfort place. Through Kennedy, I was really exploring how consumption relates to self-care and what we all do when we feel bad and and buying things and surrounding yourself with things when you feel a little bit emptier inside. Um, The three characters definitely have three very distinct relationships to money. There's Millie who's saving, saving, saving. Agatha's doing a bit of a splurge. And Kennedy, she's very like remarkably like unpolitical when it comes to money, but she has a deep connection to consumption and her room says as much. She has a chandelier. She has a canopy. She has all of these posters up. And yet Kennedy doesn't really know who she is at that moment. Our ability to just accumulate, accumulate and hurt ourselves with stuff. I was really interested in what that would look like for this young woman who who has a secret she's trying to keep. Yeah, that's so interesting. I really related to Kennedy, especially when I framed it with the background of fast fashion like I think Mm -hmm. I used that overconsumption to keep redefining myself like okay this is who I am now and it wasn't actually going and like it just kind of distracted me and it just kind of yeah I don't know how to word it but I just I found her character particularly really interesting I would I would love to read those pages on all of her stuff that's so interesting there's a lot of stuff I think that she is a victim the same way that we all are to the economy saying to her if you want to be faster smarter more organized have more friends all you have to do is buy this stuff and she listens and she feels alone when she has a little bit of a nervous breakdown. She finds herself at Target because she feels better there. I personally think that that is fascinating that you're going to a store and spending money on a face mask or little paper clips or whatever to make yourself feel better. And I, I wanted to dive into that impulse. I kept thinking back to the quote that you included at the very start of the book from the Walmart Book of the Dead. It reads, I don't want to spend eternity with the lights off. I'll buy the most expensive, longest lasting bulbs and charge them to my Amex. What were you trying to convey with that quote? Uh, That quote is from Walmart Book of the Dead written by a very wonderful person and poet, Lucy Biederman. And it's this really beautiful book of almost spells and little captures of people spending money, living their lives having guns, living in Arkansas. It's beautiful. I kept it next to my bed for about two years. And it's really great. That quote for me captured so many of the main characters and their drive to have the best thing out of what everyone has. Um, even Agatha, who has a lot of money in her relationship, she's always bartering things. She barters beauty and and her apartment and youth and her success. There's a lot of transactional things that are happening even when they're not dealing with money there's something too about the most expensive longest lasting bulbs that just felt really 
emblematic of the entire story. And I was really happy to have that quote next to the other quote, which is also <laughs> about Walmart from the man, Sam Walton as well. Yeah. Mm. So you've explored so many different intersectionalities in this book. Did you feel the pressure to give each aspect of someone's identity, I guess, um, equal weight? Truly, I didn't for a lot of reasons. This novel is approaching these characters at this specific point in their lives. Um, the funny thing is, in such a fun age, I also deal with the time from like September to December. That must be the time I'm gravitating mm. towards. But I wanted it to be a really true capture of who these characters are at that moment. That doesn't mean that you know, if they were real people later in their lives, they would really dive into their race more or their sexuality or a learning disability they discovered. That doesn't mean that those things aren't going to be a more prominent thing in their lives later. But this was just mm. what they were dealing with at this very moment. I've such a fun age dealt with race more often. And there are quite a few Black characters in this novel who aren't dealing with it in the same way as Mira, but they're still living their lives as Black people and it can't not affect them as people of color. And so they're still, you know, walking through the world as Black people. But in this specific novel at this specific time, most of my characters are very concerned with jobs, crushes, losing jobs, uh, making friends and, and all of those other life things. And all of the characters have very different relationships with money and mm -hmm. because of their upbringings as well. And I think you did a really good job of like, I, you did it in such a fun age as well of making people really uncomfortable in terms of like <laughs> this really cringy moments of like, I can't believe she just said that. Do you enjoy writing those or do you find, do you cringe yourself writing them? Um, I'm a bit clinical when I'm writing. I'm trying to get every gesture, word, everything so perfect. But there are moments when I overhear something that gives me an idea So like, the cringe turns into joy when, I, when I'm when i fueled by that moment very quickly. And I think a lot of the time with money, something that comes up that people consider cringy is people being out of touch. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're too harsh on people when we say that they're out of touch? I guess it depends on the context yeah. of who is out of touch. I think I would prefer for more, I don't know if I've ever been around for someone to say that and I would love to be in the room <laughs> <laughs> you are completely out of touch. I think that's fascinating. I think for the most part, we say those things in private. Um, yeah, for sure. We don't, we never say that to people's faces. Oh yeah. Everyone says it behind, oh, yeah, all the time. I would love mm. to be in a room where someone said that very directly and kindly. Um, I would have to write about that moment probably. I'll give you an example then. Have you seen, um, so Emma Chamberlain? She's a well, was a prominent YouTuber and started off her podcast or her YouTube channel rather as being very relatable to young people. And now she's very, very successful. And she mentioned on a podcast that she doesn't even check her bank account anymore. She knows yes. what she can buy and what <laughs> she can do, but she doesn't know the number. And a lot of people slammed her for being really out of touch. And I know a lot of the girls in the office disagree on this, but... A lot of them also believe it's not fair. Like it's it's just a reason to like kind of bring her down. Like it's like you wanted her to succeed. She has succeeded. And I just wanted to get your take on it. Do you think that's a bit harsh? I don't know this person. I think this is fascinating. I'm pretty excited and grateful for when people unearth 
those kinds of thoughts that they don't look at their bank account anymore because they're, they're so successful. I'm pretty grateful for that because I think that it highlights the fact that some people don't have to look at their bank account while everyone else is looking at it constantly. I think the star of this episode with her is like the fact that she doesn't have to do that. Um, Whether she garters attention or not, I think the inequality that exists is so drastic that like when you really think about the way that other people live, not looking at their bank accounts, it really highlights how completely unfair the, the society we are living in is, I'm grateful that they're highlighting just how absurd the inequality in this country is. I think that's the bigger thing. Not that she doesn't look at her bank account, but that everybody else has to constantly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's like what you said at the top of the episode, like we need to be honest and transparent about these things. Mm-hmm. So it sheds light on how other people live as well. Yeah. I do think this phenomenon is very interesting though, with a lot of celebrities, be it writers or actors or comedians who start out at one place and very quickly level into a completely different income bracket. And then their work suffers because they keep trying to be so relatable. I say, just tell me the truth about your lifestyle (laughs) so I can learn the truth um, rather than telling me how normal you are. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think, telling people that they're out of touch discourages them from being honest. I think so too. What side are you on with this YouTube person? I want to know. I think I think initially my instinct was like jealousy when she said that. But after more thought, I was more grateful that she was more honest about her lifestyle because mm-hmm. yeah, like she's otherwise like what do I what more can I expect from her? I probably already knew that. She was just admitting to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, it is complicated, and I do understand both sides. But it could also be like because of inflation and like the cost of living crisis, people are a bit more sensitive to hearing that hard truth. But yeah, really complicated. So I think a lot of the characters have different relationships with money because of their upbringings, and that got me thinking: what lessons about money did you learn from your parents? Ooh, um, I was raised with save, save, save save, save, save all the time. Uh, both of my parents grew up not having a lot of money at all. Um, we're very low income. So saving was a big part of my upbringing, probably to a fault. If I could go back and tell myself that it's okay to spend money sometimes, like that would be mm-hmm. fine. There are still, if you can believe it, like, like maybe like three items of clothing that I didn't buy because I thought, no, I can't. And I still think about that. Oh my God. I had a very financially precarious time in my twenties. And so I understand why I was trying to save everything. Have you rejected anything else that they have maybe not asked you to do, but maybe you don't really follow what they do anymore? Like, is there a, a certain lesson you reject? Hmm. Um, there was encouragement. I remember when I was graduating from undergraduate school, I remember my dad suggesting I go to graduate school. And at the time I really wasn't ready. And so I didn't go then. I waited seven years and I'm very glad that I waited that long to go to graduate school, which my dad was completely fine with. Um, I felt like I came into graduate school with a lot more working experience and I was used to writing under a ton of different conditions and I knew how to have a job. And so I felt strange coming into graduate school at the age of 30. But later, I felt very grateful that I knew how to have like a work 
and writing life. So I'm very glad that I waited for, for graduate school. Yeah. So we spent a whole episode talking about money and there aren't that many books that talk this candidly about money. We picked, um, I don't know if you've read it, we've picked Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson as our book club pick. I haven't read it. I'd love to. It's very, it's, it's so good. It's quite like a humorous and light read on Class of Money, but it still gets you thinking. Are there any other books you would suggest that explore themes like money and class? I think there's a tendency for a lot of literary fiction to depict super low income families in a certain way, which is perfect, striving, wanting all of the right things in the right way. One book that doesn't do that is Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. It is maybe one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my life. And it focuses on a family right before Hurricane Katrina happens. And they're incredibly low income. They're real. They're complicated and just really tender. And that's probably, yeah, it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my life. And everyone should go and read it. And we always end these author interviews with a quick fire round. So the first one is, what are you currently reading? I am currently reading a advanced copy of Entitlement by Ruman Alam. I read two chapters today in the doctor's office and I'm in. I am also reading, oh, what am I? Oh, I'm also reading Disgrace by John Kutzi. I think he won the Booker maybe a few decades ago and I'm really liking it. I'm listening to the Audible. Oh, wow. The reader is amazing. My next one is roughly how many books do you read every year? I don't believe I read as many as most authors. I'm a very slow reader and I'm always reading my students' work. So I don't really count that as reading. So, and when I'm in a really great place, I read three books a month. So that would be 24 books a year. Yeah, that's quite good. How many books a year do you read? Last year, I read 43, I think. Or 42. That's really impressive to me. And my next one is what book would you recommend to a friend going through a hard time? For a friend going through a hard time, I would recommend Heartburn by Nora Ephron. We are so used to her essays. This was her one novel. It is so sweet and tender. And I listened to the Audible and Meryl Streep narrates it. And no surprise, she's very good at it. It just hit me at a place where I... It was, it was bizarre because I was reading about a woman who finds out her husband's been cheating on her and she's seven months pregnant. But it's a very happy book and funny and witty and one of my favorite books that I've read in the past four years. I would recommend Heartburn. We have that in the office. I should read it. That's very good. And then the next one is what book deserves more hype than it gets? The Little Friend is just doing something so completely different. I don't mm-hmm. think I've read setting as well as I have in that book the dark southern gothicness of it it just really seeps into your veins the dialogue is really great in that there are things that I still quote and I think it has one of the best child protagonists I've ever read so the little friend needs a little more hype oh okay I'm gonna add that to my my TBR because I quite like the secret history thank you so much for joining me today that was really lovely. Thank you so much for asking such great questions. Not, not everybody does. So I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Shameless Book Club. You can grab yourself a copy of Kylie Reed's novel, Come and Get It, via the link in our show notes. You can also follow us on socials by searching for at the Shameless Book Club on Instagram and TikTok. We will see you on March 5 for our book review episode. Until then, take care. Bye. 
This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.